Listen as I read. I'm in Luke chapter 24. I'm beginning at verse 13. Now that same day, two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us? while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you speak with clarity. I ask that you would lay the burden of the guilt of sin upon us today, those of us that need to be brought to a place of repentance. But Lord, then as we come by faith, Remove that burden and give us an assurance of the forgiveness that we find in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, for those that have joined with us today without a faith in Christ, maybe with more questions than they have answers, I pray that they would find truth today in your word. That you would give us spiritual eyes to see the truth. That we would hear the gospel and respond. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Inspirobot calls itself an artificial intelligence dedicated to generating unlimited amounts of unique inspirational quotes for endless enrichment of pointless human existence. All right, so it's a website that you can go to. And this artificial intelligence will create for you a slogan that ranges from the absurd and nonsensical to the, like, seemingly profound. All right, so if, and you can play along. You can, you can go to your own, so kids, get your parents' permission. Parents, do not give them permission. 
all right? This is not a, not a safe place to play. But, but this artificial intelligence, when you, when you click the button, generates a, generates a saying and then puts it like on a poster for you. It, it kind of captures an, an image. Here are, here are some. Absolute smoke crumbles absolutely. All right, they get better. Better not mess with the paradoxicality of time. Huh. I mean, that seems like the kind of thing you would have heard in like a philosophy 101 course. Hunger is how nature says hello. All right, now, now this, this one, this is actually probably advice some of you need to hear. Stop saying yes and start saying, when do we start? All right, or this is my personal favorite, all right? Maybe partly because it, it feels so meaningful. Demand answers like you were your mother. I mean, maybe it's just because my mom could get any truth out of me. And she always warned me. She said, if you ever do anything wrong, I'm going to know. And she said, if I don't know, I'm praying that God will catch you in what you've done wrong. So demand answers like you were your mother, your mother who has God on her side. All right, now the software engineers insist that the machine creates the saying, so they don't do any editing of it. And the absurd ones, I think, prove their point. But the, it's the human creators that programmed this software with the nihilism that leaks through. Nihilism is that idea that life is meaningless, that reality is meaningless, that everything is meaningless. But, but even when you hear an almost meaningless statement, you can't help but try and understand it. You instinctively try and think, well, you know what, that actually that makes a little bit of sense. I could see how that would, uh, would apply to my life. Because we find some of these statements profound, even in their absurdity, because they seem to match our lives or what we want from our lives. But in the end, in a nihilistic worldview, a worldview that says there is no meaning, even if you live in that kind of world, you're still struggling for meaning. You're still trying to make sense of your life. We still think there is some sort of meaning to be found. Now, maybe when you think about the Bible, you kind of would put it in the same category as Inspirobot. Like, you, if you sift through enough of the things that it says, maybe there are a couple of little nuggets that could apply. But for the most part, it feels the Bible to you, maybe. feels nonsensical and insignificant. Occasionally, it's meaningful, but mostly you would just call it nonsense. Or maybe... And, and, and maybe this is actually worse. Those of us that, that are Christians that say we believe the Bible, maybe we sort of treat it the same way we treat Inspirobot. I mean, like, it's occasionally interesting to flip through it and find something, but we sort of, you know, when we get around to it. I mean, Inspirobot is, is, is a distraction. It's not meant to be something to guide your life every day, and that's how we treat the Bible. I mean, if I'm really desperate, I'll, I'll flip through it, and, and maybe there'll be something there. Or, or maybe we kind of pick and choose what we want from the Bible. Because there are parts of it that make us squirm, that, that we just feel like, well, that, that just culturally, that, that wouldn't fly anymore. So I'm, I'm going to ignore that part of the Bible. 
And yet, every one of us is forced to try and make sense of our own lives. And so where do you turn for answers? You might say, well, it's not the Bible, but, but where then? Where would you turn for answers? Where would you turn to find life's meaning? Where could you possibly find real hope? Now, the disciples in Luke 24... And a disciple is just someone who follows after Jesus, somebody who has listened to Jesus' teaching and by faith responds to follow after him. The disciples here on this Sunday afternoon are traveling out of Jerusalem. And and look back with me at, at their circumstances, at their search for meaning in what has just happened. Look at verse 14, back in Luke 24. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And then as they're walking along the road, they're walking at such a pace that that Jesus himself overtakes them on on this roadway. And so he comes up alongside them, and in verse 17, asks them a simple question. And perhaps it's because he's overheard enough of their conversation, sort of walking up behind them. And so he says in verse 17, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And then look at their response. Again, verse 17 They stood still. Jesus' question stops them in their tracks. The the emotional content of what they've been wrestling with is a big enough deal that, that just to ask a question draws them up short. They stop walking. Their faces downcast. Why? Because of the tragedy of what has just taken place in Jerusalem. Because of the tragedy of of what they have seen. The chaos and confusion of their lives. The disappointment of what has taken place. And so they ask Jesus, almost incredulous, that he doesn't know. that. I mean, you've heard enough of what we were talking about. How do you not know about these things? So they ask in, in verse 18, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? No, the irony is that of course he knows. He actually knows what they don't know. He's the only one who has the full and complete understanding of what has taken place on this Sunday so far. And yet, what does Jesus do? Does he immediately jump into a a lecture? Does he immediately sort of say, oh, wait, 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 don't jump to conclusions about what I know or don't know. What does he do? He Verse 19 just asks them a simple question. What things? What things are you talking about? What Jesus is is doing is forcing them to wrestle with the meaning of what they're looking at. He's exposing in them their hopelessness and despair. And maybe for those of us that, that are Christians, this should be an encouragement to us. Jesus is not afraid of any questions we'll throw at him. He's not afraid of any of the mess that we'll dump out it on him. But also, he willingly and simply engages in conversation just by asking the question, what is it that you're talking about? What things are you referring to? What is it that's happening in your life? And so maybe that should be a lesson for those of us that call ourselves Christians, that want people to to hear the good news about Jesus. We move beyond the the casual, well, how are you doing? I'm fine. 
And we actually take the opportunity when somebody says, well, it's been a rough week. There's been a lot of, lot of stuff happening. What stuff? Just ask the follow-up question. Just simply listen to the person who's right there in front of you. And maybe for us as Christians, it means if you are waiting somewhere, put your phone away. Lift up your head and look around. And simply say hello. It's, it's a, I recognize a lost art in our culture to have a conversation with an actual human being. But don't you see that's all Jesus is doing? What is it that you're talking about? That sounds interesting. And then he doesn't immediately jump in with an answer. He, he asks them, tell me more. What things are you talking about? And so it means as you're, as you're waiting in line at the grocery store, put your phone away and talk with the clerk. Talk with somebody else in line. As you're watching your children play on the playground, put your phone away and talk with one of the other parents or caregivers who are there. As you're, as you're sitting down to a meal, even with the people that live in your own house, just ask the simple question. What is it that's going on in your life? Because what Jesus does here is he draws out from them this fearful response. I mean, look at, look at how they, they, they respond. They respond by giving us a bunch of details about who Jesus is. That he was a prophet, verse 19 says. That he was handed over by the, the conspiracy of the religious leaders with the Romans and that he died. And then look at the, the heartache of verse 21. The sadness that's displayed there. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Their hope seems lost. Now, we don't know much about these disciples, how long they'd been following Jesus. Were they with him for three years, or had they just met him during these last days of his ministry? But they had recognized that their hope was in him. He was the one who was going to redeem Israel, to buy Israel, the people of God, out of slavery to their sin, to pay the full price, to offer them forgiveness. And yet he's dead. All right, now, this may seem like a, a small detail, but what are the two disciples' names that Jesus is talking with? Okay, Cleopas and... Yeah, I don't know either, because it's not written down. Why do we only know one of their names? Because if you were making this story up, if this didn't really happen... Why wouldn't you just name both of them? Like, if you're just pulling names out of a hat, like, well, let's, let's, we've got a Cleopas here and we've got a, a Joseph here, and you just throw out a couple of names. But what Luke is doing is he's writing history for us. And Luke has said all along that he is investigating and talking to the eyewitnesses. That's how he begins his gospel, his explanation, that he is here trying to carefully investigate everything that happened in the life of Jesus to write it down the words of the eyewitnesses. Why do we only have one of their names? His name is entirely irrelevant to the story. We don't need to know either of these disciples' names. I mean, maybe it's Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas, or maybe it's Cleopas and another disciple. We don't, we don't know any details. Why give us one of the names? 
I think because it's, it's the footnote for how did Luke know this happened. One of the disciples was named Cleopas. Cleopas who told me this story. Cleopas who was there. I mean, do you see what the Bible is presenting itself as? It's not as, a, not as a collection of fairies and fables, but as historical reality. Luke wants us to understand what's really in here really happened. Cleopas is his witness, the eyewitness to what took place here. And then there's, a, there's another detail in, in the, the words of Cleopas and the other disciple that, that also show us something of the truthfulness of this historical account, a detail that you wouldn't make up. What do they say? They say, we, we feel like verse 21, that our, our hope is gone. We had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to re- redeem Israel. And then look at verse 22. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find the body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. These disciples don't appear to believe the witness of the women. Well, and that kind of makes sense in the ancient world. You wouldn't have believed them either. Because as you were growing up a little girl, you would have been told, well, you know, you just, you really can't do that kind of thing when you grow up. And I would have been told that, you know, women really aren't that reliable. They weren't allowed to be in the ancient world, whether in a a Jewish court. Women were not allowed to testify. They were not considered reliable witnesses, not by the people of that day. And so if you were making this story up, if Luke were making it up, he would not have made the first witnesses to the resurrection women. The other disciples don't even believe it. They go and check it out, but they didn't see Jesus, so, well... We don't, really, we don't really know if this could be true. Who is it that believes the women, that chooses the women as witnesses? It's God himself. He says, they're my daughters. I made them. They bear my image. They can witness to the truth. And God goes against the culture, the expectations of this ancient culture, in using women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. See, if Luke were making all of this up, you don't put that detail in there. It undermines the trustworthiness of your whole story. These disciples walking along the way on Easter Sunday don't even believe in Easter yet. It's a detail you wouldn't add. But in their hopelessness and confusion, we then have the response of Jesus. He'd initially drawn them out with questions. What are you talking about? What are the things of of which you've been speaking? But now, having heard what they said, Jesus responds. Look at verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is a word of rebuke. How do you not understand this already? Not only do you have women who are witnesses today, eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, but even without their testimony, God has been sending prophet after prophet to to announce what had to happen. Look at verse 26. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Did not the Messiah, Christ is just the transliteration for us of of the, the Greek for the Messiah, the promised king of Israel, the one God would send who had 
to suffer in the place of sinners. Your sin and mine was so great that God, the only way to bring forgiveness was through the death of his son, through the suffering of his son. And so Jesus rebukes these men for their lack of faith. He rebukes these disciples for not understanding what they should have already known. Jesus, the Christ, had to suffer. Now, they knew a lot. They actually understood most of the outline of the events that had taken place in the life of Jesus. They saw the historical reality of his death, but they did not understand its spiritual significance. And so what does Jesus do for them? After this rebuke, then, he opens the Scriptures so that they can hear about Jesus. Look at verse 27, and and this is one of those verses that makes theologians think, oh, I wish this verse stretched on a little bit longer. Because we're told in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I I heard one one pastor say, if if he could go back in time and, and be present for any biblical event, you know, David versus Goliath, for, for any of the, for the, the crossing of the Red Sea, for, for any of the great miracles of God, where would he want to be? He'd want to be right here. He'd want to be in verse 27. He'd want to hear the rest of Jesus' sermon because he, he, he recognizes that wouldn't that help me so much to understand how I should read the Old Testament? Wouldn't this verse, and, but he then makes the point. But of course, the rest of the New Testament does that for me. It explains how I should do it. And if I needed the rest of Jesus' sermon, Luke would have included it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us. But what is Jesus doing? He's offering them the assurance of God's rescue. The assurance that the the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is real because Jesus is standing announcing it pointing to the scriptures, starting with Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the preeminent of the Old Testament prophets. Beginning with Moses and then working through the rest of the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus announces what is said of him in the scriptures. He gives them the good news. I mean, do you believe this? Are you willing to listen to what Jesus says? What it says about our sin, our helplessness, our hopelessness, and what it says about God's love and mercy and forgiveness. Will you put your trust in Jesus? Well, then as they near the village, their seven-mile journey coming to its conclusion, Jesus is about to continue on, and, and they urge him to come. Come, stay with us. It's getting dark. You need to eat anyway. Come on in. And so we then find in verse 30, they finally understand who Jesus is. When Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Those are actions which would remind us of things Jesus has already done in this gospel. The the feeding of the thousands with the loaves. The breaking of bread with his disciples at the Last Supper. And then spiritually, they're given faith to believe. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Because, of course, they should recognize Jesus. They're in close conversation with him, walking for for probably the distance of several miles. 
a lengthy conversation. They just saw him a few days ago. Wouldn't they recognize him? Well, well, back in verse 16, we're told that they were kept from recognizing him. Their delayed recognition is for our good because then you and I got to see the rest of the story. We got Jesus's sermon announced to them. And so if you struggle today to believe, if you really are wrestling for some sort of meaning in life, then pray that God would open your eyes to this truth. Ask God to give you the faith to believe. This isn't about you figuring it out or piecing the puzzle together. This is God's announcement of good news to you. And so ask God to do that work in your life. And if you are a believer then I, I want this to be an encouragement to you, both of the reality of God's love for us in the resurrection, but also of God's supernatural work in the lives of people around us. God is still opening people's eyes to recognize Jesus. And that should make us persevere in our witness to people, people that need to hear the gospel from us again, people for whom we've been praying for years. Because it's not until after the meal when God supernaturally intervenes that they believe. And in what else, what else could, could, could have been done to bring them to faith? It is Easter Sunday, and they hear a sermon from Jesus himself, and they still don't believe. So if you feel like it's taking a long time for you to explain the gospel to one of your loved ones or coworkers or neighbors, continue to persevere. Continue to pray. Ask God to spiritually intervene. The sermon of Jesus on Easter Sunday required the supernatural intervention to bring faith. But, but also notice, if there ever was a sermon that could have just been spoken on, on the individual's authority— it would have been that sermon, right? It's resurrection day, and it's Jesus. But what does he do? He keeps pointing back to the authoritative scriptures. Because he's giving these disciples the pattern of what their lives will look like, to turn back to God's word, to turn back to the authority of God's word. He's giving us the pattern of what it looks like to hear the voice of Jesus. See, the reason that verse 27 can be so short it's because you have the rest of the Old Testament. It's right here, bound and printed for you in easy-to-read format. We have the Word of God. This is where our authority comes from. This is our only and true and lasting hope. God opened their eyes. He opened their eyes to the Scriptures. And look at how they then describe it after Jesus has disappeared from their sight. Look at how they describe what's happened in verse 32. They, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Looking back, they're recognizing how God had been at work in them. And maybe that's where you are today. You feel the, the stirrings. You feel the, the discomfort with the questions that you brought, the answers that you brought in to life's big question. Pray that God would open your eyes to the truth of the scriptures. Because you're forced to make sense of your life. And nihilism gives you no answers. And that's its very definition, that life is meaningless. But, but nihilism feels kind of cool. 
I mean, not like in a practical sense. In a practical sense, it's hopeless and filled with despair. But like in a philosophical sense, it seems kind of cool. Like I live, I die, and then I cease to exist. And so then I'm free in this life. I don't have to worry about death. I don't have to worry about what will come because I just, I won't be. And so it feels kind of philosophically cool to kind of live this way. You feel like maybe then, well, I'm, I'm free then to create whatever meaning I want in this life right here. On the news report about the Inspirobot, they gave the, the nihilistic sayings, the sayings that pointed us to a life of meaninglessness. The, the journalist who, who, who told the story, he says, he says, I love especially the deeply nihilistic statements. He says, because I'm actually someone who believes that we're here briefly and then gone for all eternity afterwards, which is why I always try to focus on the moment I'm in, not on eternity. The nihilism that he grabs hold of makes his job pointless. Now, I'm thankful that this journalist is inconsistent. Because if he were consistent with his nihilistic beliefs, then he would be a terrible person to live with or to be around. And thankfully, I mean, he's actually kind of delightful to listen to on the radio. Because if there was no meaning, then his work of exposing the abuses in culture of of putting a spotlight on the the places we need to change, of pointing out the the despair and the evil in our world. Well, if his philosophical system is true, all of that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you you murder or care for your neighbor. It's if it's all meaningless. Now, thankfully, he's forced, forced to turn away from that pointlessness. Because like each one of us, we're searching for meaning. We're struggling to find hope. And where will you find hope? How could you ever, on your own, in a meaningless world, ever make sense of anything? The idea that absolute smoke crumbles absolutely would be just as useful to you as when someone dear to you turns to you and says, I love you. And yet you know there is meaning in those words. You know that there's a difference between those statements. And it's here in God's word that we have God turning to us. It's here where we hear God say to us, I love you. My son, the Messiah, I sent him to suffer. He had to suffer because of your sin, because of my love for you. God is saying to us, I've shown you what love is. I've been telling you all along how much I love you. I sent the prophets. I sent Jesus, and Jesus is not dead. Jesus, who had to suffer, has been raised to glory. God's word is powerful. And so let us pray that God will open our eyes to the hope and the meaning that is found in his word. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in this gospel, this good news. Lord, for those of us that follow after Christ, that have given ourselves by faith, Lord, I pray that we would not take 
pride in our accomplishments, but that we would recognize that even, even our faith is a gift given to us by you. And so, Lord, for those that feel the, the burden, the, the hopelessness of life in a broken world, I, I pray that even now they would come to you by faith. Lord, that you would be the God who, who does the work of bringing your gospel forth in our hearts, that your word would not return to you empty, but would accomplish its very purposes even now as we pray, even as the service concludes, that you would draw those who are here to you by faith. And Lord, make us as Christians bold in our witness for you. Make us confident in the power of the gospel. Make us, make us those that rejoice in the blessing that has been given to us, the assurance that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.